Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So this week's exchange is with James Lavelle, a DJ, recording artist and label boss with an incredible story to tell. We were speaking shortly after the release of The Man From Mowax, the feature-length documentary that brings Lavelle's story to life with unflinching honesty. We follow Lavelle through the thrills and spills of his long career, touching on the rise and fall of his highly influential label, Mowax, and the combustible creative relationships that drove Uncle, his main musical project. Throughout the film, we see Lavelle on an emotional roller coaster, navigating the extreme highs and lows of being caught up in the music industry. The 10 year process of making the film has taken something of a personal toll on Lavelle, which is where we began this extended conversation recorded at his home in South London earlier this month. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The Exchange with James Lavelle is up next. Okay, so uh, we're talking a few days after the film came out. I guess we just wanted to firstly say that um, we found it very compelling, quite emotionally affecting at times. I think you deserve credit for allowing such a honest portrayal of your life. So yeah, big up for that. I was wondering how you are feeling uh, now it's been released and it's out in the world. I'm just glad it's over. <laughs> okay, It's been 10 years of my life. I just sort of feels like I can move on now from it. Um, yeah, to be honest with you, I'm just, just sort of glad it's done. Just one of relief. Yeah, I just wanted it out. It's been 10 years of sort of this strange journey and strange thing. You know, whilst it, it is a sort of document of one's life, it's also, you know, it has its, it has its agenda and its narrative and to make it into the film it is. And, and that's fine. But I just sort of feel like I just, you know, it finished a long time ago as far as the, what the film, concluded with mm. and but it's sort of been hanging over me for a long time and I just kind of I'm just glad it's out so I'm glad that um generally the reaction for this sort of strange film is 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 being positive and I just for me it just sort of allows me to sort of mentally move on really yeah I got it you know it's a bit of a kind of it kind of puts a sort of lid on a box really you know? yeah I understand Seen you mentioned to I think it was Clash that um, you felt like there was potentially a, an imbalance in the film in your eyes. 
maybe it maybe I don't know if in balance I just think that maybe it, skewed negative or no I just think that it, it focuses on certain things so if you want to say it's a, a, a great form about my career I'd say it has a perspective of one's career but it's not a definitive film of my career I mean you know I did you know there's nothing really about particularly focused on DJing in the world that I played, you know, from whether I worked with Sasha or Dove Fire or was a resident of Womb or Avalon or Space or any of those things. It doesn't go into particularly the art world that I've worked in or um, the collaborations, particularly with, with you know, a lot of other, uh, you know, outside of music. It, it focuses very much on a, a sort of DJ shadow. It has a foot very much in a certain period of time that then kind of expands over that documentary. You know, having Paul Bradshaw or, or Giles Peterson talk about war stories is, it, to me, is silly because those records weren't meant, made for that that genre of DJs. So their perspective has no real meaning to me, not in any negativity towards Giles or Paul Bradshaw or the fact that, you know, it focuses on a lot of broken relationships, but I but they don't focus on relationships that have continued, mm. which are lots of relationships. And I think people have to remember that um, when you're working in very intense periods of time creatively, um, you're in the studio seven days a week, 24 hours a day with people, things get heated. Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, you know, just look at any any creative bands or whatever. There's very few bands that actually survive long periods of time. I think that um, it focuses very much on a DJ shadow agenda and this reconciliation with shadow, even though I'd reconcile with shadow way before meltdown. Got it. And also, whilst I totally respect and admire shadow, it's not a relationship that is that meaningful me moving in my life right now. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, um, we don't share the same goals in the music we make. Uh, we haven't had a, um, an intimate relationship for many years. It doesn't mean that we have a negative relationship, but you know, it's, it's kind of like you're focusing. It's, it's like when you focus on that period of Moax, it's like if you imagine everybody focusing on you, on you being at school or university and how many people when 20 years later are best friends with everybody they went to university with or school, not that many, some are, but most people aren't. I think it's just that it gives us a, a certain narrative. Yeah. Got it. Um, and I think that it, it also has this habit of playing that, you know, it will say that the consequent, the, the subsequent records after science fiction were less successful, which is actually not true because Never Neverland became one of the biggest electronic records of its time. You know, Sasha's remix of An Estate was the biggest record, dance record of that year. And that record outside of Universal, because we relicensed it to the Global Underground, became a global phenomenon. Uh, war stories, whilst it might not have sold, the f no, no record is going to sell the physical amount of 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 science fiction. The New Arctic Monkeys record, which is the biggest vinyl record, didn't sell as many vinyl records as science fiction because 1998 was the biggest um, year ever of record sales. Of you know, there was there has never been a bigger year since on recorded history, and digital came into play and what it doesn't talk about is things like well war story is actually financially the most successful record i ever made and it was the most licensed record that year in the world so it was it was you know it it, it, it wasn't about physical sales anymore because that wasn't the industry it was about it being licensed to film and television yeah, and and actually what i what the actual so the if you if you sort of do it in a more of a you know it's like saying is avengers bigger than 
than um, The Wizard of Oz. It's not, because one in three people in America went to see Wizard of Oz. But there were less people. So it's inflation, you know, it's like all those things. So I I get a little bit frustrated sometimes at the fact that I get frustrated sometimes in the sort of language that is used. Uh, And the fact that it centers on certain characters, which were very much part of my life 20 years ago, but aren't so much and haven't been for a long time now. Hence why I wanted people like Josh Homme in the documentary and Nathan Coley. Because those are people that my those relationships are what are, are much more contemporary and 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 influential in my day to day life now than let's say Straight No Chaser or Swifty or you know DJ Shadow you know but it tells a story sure and it has an act you know it's formatted in a very traditional way and but if it wasn't would people be watching it do you know what I mean I think I think that. You know, I, I'd love to think that, you know, I'd love a film that was just purely based on one's creativity and not all the other stuff. Would people be as interested? I, I doubt it. Mm. Um, in the same way that, you know, you know, when you, for me, I like Hearts of Darkness. I like some kind of monster. I like Dig. You know, they don't resonate in the same way that a BBC, the Daft Punk documentary resonates, even though it's fascinating watching the Daft Punk documentary. It's, 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 it, or LCD sound system, but they're not, it's not like watching a movie. It's, it's a kind of, it's a, a slightly more anoraki view of, do you know, do you know what I mean? Or, I do, yeah. or who invented the 808 or the Fender Stratocaster. I mean, they're, they're fascinating. I love documentaries like that because of information. But they're not documentaries that necessarily have that kind of cinematic quality. Mm. And even the MIA documentary that's out at the moment or about to come out, it kind of follows a similar path because, and, and therefore is more engaging as a film. Even though I know from friends, I don't know her, but I know very close friends of her that she was found it difficult to engage with. And I, and I, I and of course, seeing yourself, seeing yourself on the screen, regardless of the subject matter, is can be difficult enough. I mean, most active friends of mine don't watch their movies. It's their job. They, you're in the moment. And I think a lot of what they've taken from in the moment is the low. Some, Not all of it, you know, but some of it is quite the lows to accentuate at certain points. They're not focusing. There was a lot of good times during those periods as well. I just think it needs, it, 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 but it wouldn't say the same kind of story. And, and I'm not trying to be negative about that. I just think that, you know, it's a film. Mm. And in a weird way, I look at it like I'm a second person in, in myself. It's not me. It is me, but it's not me because you haven't got everything else. You know, you're, you're taking snippets of things and editing them together. It's a version of you, you know I mean? put together yeah, for yeah, narrative. Yeah, for a narrative. And that narrative is this extraordinary, you know, quick rise and, and then all the sort of the snowball effect after that. And and yes, it did. And, and, and there were a lot of difficult times. Um, but then that's what's resonating. So therefore, you know, I, and also I'm going to see probably more of the negative than the positive because I'm, I'm looking at myself. Um, but what I found really interesting is that what I think generally people have found as, as I've picked up on the positive rather than the negative is that one that time doesn't exist so a lot of young a lot of younger people are kind of like wow it's just like you know it's rock and roll you live the rock and roll you know and and you know it's like that that's the mystique of that's the sort of the madness of rock and roll and it doesn't really exist anymore not really 
No. You know, you don't, you know, it does exist in the sense that people are still going out and doing drugs and doing fucked up crazy shit, but, but, but they're so closed doors about it because of social media that you're not going to see it. And yet, because we didn't have social media, you could, there was a, there was a freedom that didn't exist then that I think you get, but with that, there was a, you know, also there's a sort of certain price to pay is that, you know, I think people are so, so conscious of every detail of what they do and and with djing and musicians like you know i know djs djs who have been banned from festivals because they did a line of cocaine and got caught doing a line of coke that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago i mean it was encouraged and everybody and the people that are firing them for it were the people that were doing it then which is the irony of it but it's all about this clean cut and also in in especially in electronic music in the dj world there's so much money involved now you know, Calvin Harris, 46 million this year. I mean, mm. it's, in, you know, it's uncomprehendable. Un, un I mean, I remember when Paul Oakenfold was getting paid 20 grand a gig and that was like, fuck me, you know, what are you doing? Um, that, that was like mad. Now you're, people are getting paid a million pounds. So the, 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 you know, with that comes a different kind of industry. You think it you know? necessarily has to be streamlined and professionalized. Yes, everything's so clean and professionalized. But then on the other extreme, and to be honest with you, what did make, I sort of made peace with the film in a certain way in my, in this sort of like, what the fuck have I done? Kind of, I'm, I'm mad doing this. And oh my God, it is actually now out and it's, or it's coming out and there's, posters and fucking interviews and you know because before it was just this sort of ongoing thing that he never felt it was going to get finished it was kind of like yeah i'll do another interview it's 10 years later whatever is this you know it, it, it it's not that that thing is not um a physical thing for everybody else is that with avici i think that kind of hit and struck a nerve for me because actually with all that cleansiness and all that money and all that you know, that's sort of the modern world we live in. He, you know, what happened to him? And I sort of look at myself and go, well, I did all that without anybody looking, being around for me. And, and or any of those questions or those, you know, you couldn't talk about anxiety, you know, anxiety or, or depression or, or, or substance abuse or addiction or any of those things. It was, you just, you just had to man up, you know, and I was a young kid who didn't, really have the tools you know i was a pretty sensitive young person who whose life was ripped up ripped up from underneath and when moax really everything just fell apart pretty much only a couple of years after it started because once a&m once the deal with a&m finished that was the end and that was my life and it was everything I, you know and i was a 24 24 year old kid and you weren't given the tools or the support my you know steve finer who's in that documentary he wasn't around you know they weren't around they were he was managing the All Saints and doing that. They weren't, they weren't, in, they weren't. They also weren't um, really interested in what what I was really trying to do, was, which, which was trying to create a, a kind of modern universe, which is, I think, why the film resonates now in many ways is that is what I tried, to, what I was involved in and I was one of the sort of pioneers of was is become the basis of the modern record business. Everybody collaborates. You know, Kanye doesn't make records to sell records. He makes records to sell sneakers. It's just that that's the cool end of it to get, you know, it, but really, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that's not why he wants to make music. I'm not saying as an artistic thing, but if you're talking about business, he ain't making 500,000 pounds in a day selling a, a record. Mm. He's making that selling t-shirts. 
you know the record serves as the is the is the kind of is the um, glue for everything it is the sort of the backbone for everything else it's the art Brand it's the art and it's the brand you know do you think that the you know these the you know the, most of these people are making you know look of course if you're drake or calvin harris and spotify or whatever you're making money but but that's also become a recent thing because the digital era of music has only started to become transparently financial in the last couple of years so um i think that you know but what i was trying to do people didn't understand and people weren't engaging in and that was very difficult because i was sort of seen as this kind of mad eccentric kid and i, and I was but the ideas that i had not being e egotistical or anything but i mean you know it's great even though it would be i prefer it maybe if i was doing it now because i would have benefited financially from it is that actually that those ideas were, were have now resonate because that is what we live in now and that was the beginning of it just to pick up on something you said there about being this like mad eccentric kid uh, one of the things that struck me pretty much throughout the film was just your energy levels and particularly in the beginning of the film when you were trying to infiltrate the hip-hop scene or just generally get a foothold in the industry what was driving that urgency i mean it you, you just had like at some points you just had this i don't know this energy about you in this presence where you're just like i have to get shit done as quickly yeah, as possible i mean i just wanted to, i just i just i mean i loved it and i was i was it was you know it was a period where you for whatever reason you just make things happen and it was you know it was a it was the most exciting thing ever and and i was naive so i didn't have any boundaries there was no consequence to your actions in the way that they are now you know you you just went you know it was like live by the sword, die by the sword and kind of just get on, you know, you just did it. And as life goes on, you, you learn by your, or, some, or some, sometimes you learn by your mistakes, but there was just, you know, it was, it was a kind of the, the it was a blank canvas. No fear. No fear. Well, the, what I did have a lot of fear. I mean, it was an incredibly male bullyish laddie industry and that was toxic and very hard to navigate because everybody was always 10 years older than you. I was bullied very badly. Um, you know, the music, what I was, was, you know, we have, you know, you, you, you can, you know, things like Resident Advisor and, you know, Pitchfork and these, and, 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 well, things that have come from being online have grown up in a period where the sort of the intellectuals have taken over, you know, the biggest people in dance, you know, the greatest artists in dance music are people like Fortet. They're not boys' own. It's not Terry, you know, it's not football. It's not lad culture. It's, it's geek culture. When I started, it wasn't. It was the opposite. Huh. Geek culture was indie music, was Radiohead, was bands like that. What dance music and electronic music and hip hop was street, rude boy, gangster, and it was football. And you had to navigate through that. And that was hard, you know, but you, but it, but it was also an incredible, um, sort of way of, you know, learning and learning to deal with, with people and, 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 you know, I was a middle class kid from Oxford. So you suddenly thrust into a very different environment and how to navigate that. And sort of, it was a great sort of, um, internship in, 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 in many ways. But I think the business is very different. You know, you got to remember, you know, when music magazine started, I was hung because I dyed my hair. Now every DJ's got, you know, he's got, it's, it's, you know, 
it's just, it's just a, a kind of small and personal expression. Yeah yeah, 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 sure. One of the things I wanted to pick up on with you was the UK's relationship with hip hop. You know, when things were really breaking here, um, you obviously very invested in this scene from a pretty early age. What was the process like for the UK absorbing and interpreting this music? I'm really interested in when did, um, you know, imitation morph into innovation? But I think it started, I think it was like that from the beginning. You think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had bands like Stereo MCs were incredibly, uh, you know, um, innovative. They were working with the Jungle Brothers. You had Moni Love. You had, you know, Moni Love cracked America, you know. Um, you had the sound system scene, Soul to Soul, Massive Attack. I mean, you know, Soul to Soul. I know Puff Daddy, when he did Mary Jo Bly's second album, the basis of that was Soul to Soul. He was obsessed with Nellie Hooper. You know, w- w- um, records like Unfinished Sympathy, Blue Lines, you know. So I think the innovation has always been there. I think, I think there was always, there was mimicking. And I think, but the scenes have, have, you know, English culture has also created more and more of its own identity within hip hop over the years, which then probably the big, the, the big fundamental change with that was probably something like Dizzy Rascal. But I think that, I think that we, you know, at, at the beginning, I think, especially at the beginning, I think England was incredibly innovative in that way. But I think that hip hop also went, started as a sort of New York thing, then became a global thing, and then went back to being a very New York thing, and then branched out, um, sort of, um, with LA and NWA and stuff like that. But, but it prominently been about one city for, for, for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, but, but, you know, there was a, there was, I think what was happening here, record labels like G Street, um, were really, were really creative and, and influential things. I just think that for some reason, the sort of, that worldwide thing sort of started, stopped, and then kind of found its way again, you know, and I think that's indicative of a lot of It was of potentially helpful that sound system culture was kind of in the bloodstream here. But also don't forget that what, then hip hop became something else here. Hip hop became hardcore. You know, Liam Howlett, all those lot, they grew up on it. They started listening, they were listening to hip hop records. It wasn't, they didn't, they, they made, they invented hardcore and, and, and drum and bass, etc. Drum and bass jungle was a purely it was but it was a british take on hip-hop i think the thing was that you couldn't emulate necessarily the the success or the style of we were obsessed with american rappers predominantly um and it went in a different way and i think that that also had a lot to do with drug culture and raves and the fact that actually we we're a lot freer than america was racially and culturally we we're a lot more whilst we have of course of lots of problems in that way we our culture was was a lot more integrated and things came together a lot more and 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 other other forms of music came out of out of that so the initial thing of hip-hop and collecting breaks and samples and all that stuff that culture then became you know much more diverse you know whether it was you know, Nightmares on Wax making Dexterous I mean George was a hip-hop DJ they were all everybody were hip-hop DJs before you know, everybody had grown up on hip hop and they'd all had their, their own UK hip hop crews before kind of doing this new form of music. But that was also because it was great to, to, to go out and 
dance and get your head get off your head do you know what i mean you know mm, and, yeah, and yeah. so so i think that the evolution of hip-hop in the uk took different different directions on one level it was the massive attacks the porter's heads the moaxes the other direction was the metal heads the andy c's the prodigies mm. do you know what i mean it's interesting i hadn't necessarily made that link yeah. before yeah yeah i mean you know amen brother all those records they're records that were so you know it was you know you've got to remember in sort of 88 89 when all that stuff happened the hip-hop records were quite aggressive public it was public enemy fast you know james brown sampling funky drummer breakbeat records but quite aggressive if you listen to the if you listen to what then happened with you know the beginnings of drum and bass and 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 you know british techno and even british dance music they all they were all very breakbeat led you know it wasn't disco england didn't make we didn't make disco records we made breakbeat records even if you listen to gat decor or records like that they're breakbeat led you know um they're not frankie knuckles they're not and they're not donna summer they're not they're not so much those records they're not um Oh, you know, who's Paragolized Garage DJ? You know, they're not, those weren't, those weren't, the, band, yeah. you know, those weren't, they, they wasn't emulating that. They were, they were street records made by street kids that had grown up on hip hop and created something different. And then you had something which went the other way, which was, you know, the things like Soul to Soul and, and Massive Attack, where they were taking those, that, that, those beats, but they were, they were, um, using lovers reggae singers. You know, and they brought the, the lovers thing, the lovers thing was a British thing. You know that 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 style of music was very much an English thing, rather than even Jamaica. And so they were, you know, it was, you know, they take you'd get something like Sharon Nelson, who was a, a a lovers reggae singer, or had that's what she'd grown up more on, and putting her over a hip hop beat, you know, or, or or slowing it all down and doing something where, you know, to me the greatest British hip hop. There's there's a couple of early extraordinary british hip-hop records and i think that blue lines is probably at the top of the pyramid but then go and listen to a record like the syndicates album that record is unbelievable and if you listen to modern garage or well you listen to garage or you listen to even a lot of american r&b contemporary r&b that record was doing it way before they were you know america it was it was actually r it was kind of it was it was new jack swing it was it was you know kind of it wasn't hip-hop beats it was jack you know and then suddenly something like puffy did mary j bly you know and that then but that took an english aesthetic so it's weird how in many ways we took from america and then turned it around and then america would take something back from us and now what's amazing in the last 10 years of people you know is is americans coming back here and taking and you know you've got Skepta with ASAP Rocky you've got Drake sampling Sanford or Rihanna sampling the XX or whatever you know so it's sort of but I think it's always been a bit like that you know was it important to you to differentiate what you were doing with Momak Wax at the beginning from the States not really I, it, it, didn't, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't on your mind it wasn't particularly on my mind I mean I just wanted to I really really wanted to sign a lot of American hip-hop acts but it was impossible I was, um, I was, uh, at one point I was signing Company Flow. Um, I was signing organized, tried to sign organized confusion. It's a band called Alphabet Soup. I was also in the running to that I was going to run Def Jam in the UK and do Mowax Def Jam was going to be part of it. I was going to take Def Jam and put it with Mo, and we were going to do Def Jam through Mowax. 
and I went to meet, meet Leah Cohen and he said to me, um, sounds like a great idea, but I'm way more interested in Houston right now than England, you know? So what, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not really that interested, you know? I mean, what were you looking for in your artists? I, I was looking for, um, individualism and community and the global thing so that you know but i but i definitely also having you know djing in the way i was and the kind of records i liked you know i i the, a lot of you know a lot of the blueprint for the the sound that became inverted hip is hip in commas a sort of moax instrumental hip-hop thing is i love finding you know weird tracks on, on on records that instrumentals i like playing sort of mad cut and paste hip-hop instrumentals as a dj so 33 percent god the beastie boys or return of the original art form by major force or mantronics king of the beats you know those were records that really resonated with me and but then you started hearing weird things like you'd heard the first nightmares on wax record and there'd be a night's interlude in there or tranquility bass they came in peace and these really strange records, which were kind of taking soundtracky, a small soundtracky sort of ambient aesthetic, mixing them with samples and creating this sort of weird soundtrack. So when I heard DJ Shadow, because previously to Shadow, I was still work I was working with people like the Funk Mob and Marden Hill and, and bands that were doing that. But I think that when it got when I heard Shadow, it was kind of like it it it, it kind of it ticks every box. And I think also because I was, I was very into soundtracks. I was very into, for some reason, very into, um, classical sort of the use of classical music within electronic music. So a record like Unfinished Sympathy or something like that was that I kind of wanted to sort of create something new with that type of sound. I also growing up here, I was, you know, you, I was, I was exposed to whether it was Giles Peterson and Norman Jay on one level, you know, Wild Bunch, Soul to Soul, another, and then, you know, uh, what was going on with Acid House and Techno. So it was just also a way of joining all those dots and creating a language that kind of worked between everything. And that was how, you know, again, you know, when you were talking to a Carl Craig about doing something, you know, they invented techno. Before techno, they were listening to other records. So you could talk to them about, you know, I was, you know, I'd be talking to Carl Craig about Sun Ra or, John Coltrane or, 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 you know, um, a lot of jazz or soul records because that's what he'd grown up with as well as the influence of craft work or whatever. So when you were talking about something like the records, you know, La Funk Mob records or DJ Shadow records, people, they, those, those types of artists kind of understood that because they were trying to do the same thing, but with this thing called techno, mm. you know, if you listen to early great techno records, like, you know, especially Carl Craig, 69, all those kind of records, they're very break sample kind of based tracks. You know, um, we're not talking about the techno of, of so much of, of necessarily of, of, of now. In those records, they were still taking influences from, you know, um, uh, you know, Bombata and, and it wasn't referencing like itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, this and, thing and creating something new, you know. Um, how comfortable were you with the trip hop term? I hated it. Did well, you? Yeah, yeah, but that was just a, that was just a sort of thing of we're all put in the same box. So suddenly it's like you know Chemical Brothers, DJ Shadow, don't know everybody's in the same box. And being you know at that time in your life and that age, you sort you sort you, you you sort of have a slightly more elitist attitude. And it's like I think when somebody coins a term that you didn't particularly invent 
or whatever, you know, it was like somebody was labeling your music. Do you remember where it came from? It came from, I think it was Mixmag or DJ Magazine. It's one of the two. Yeah. And it was an article about uh, Moax, Chemical Brothers. I can't remember the other big, other artists that they were bringing into the mix, but sort of, I suppose things like Wall of Sound was happening and stuff like that. But you know, but then on, on one level, it was like sort of the chemicals and DJ Shadow, whilst now you can see this kind of total symmetry. At the time, it was like that was kind of, kind of more of a, of, of, of the sort of house techno, you know, that was more of the dance club scene. And what we were doing was something a bit more, you know, it, was, it had a sort of a, a different take on that. So, but when it was all piled into one thing, you know, it's like sort of saying Metallica and Queens of the Stone Age are the same. They have, you know, they're not. They might be hard rock, but they're not the same kind of thing. But, you know, and oh yeah, there was Porter's Head Massive. So it's Porter's Head Massive Attack, Chemical Brothers, DJ Shadow, Moax, Tricky, and then sort of Wall of Sound. And it kind of, you know, um, and you know, also I was dealing with Shadow. Shadow to him, he was just, in his mind, he was just making hip hop records, you know. Because they were instrumental was not the point. It wasn't rap. Rap is the language, but hip hop was the mentality. So we thought we were just making hip hop records. I get it now. It's it, I don't have a problem with it so much now. You know, I could, yeah. I mean, you I know, could tell just, obviously when you're and in actually the thick in a weird it. way, the term is not necessarily a derogative term. It's, it was trippy. It was just this idea of something which was more psychedelic, I suppose. You know. Just to mention Shadow there. Um, you know, it's uh, going to be an obvious uh, point of conversation. I'm aware that there might be people listening to this who maybe haven't heard introducing. And I wondered if you could briefly summarize why that was such a landmark record for the scene, for the label and for, you know, music lovers. I mean, I, it's just one of the, it's just one of those great records. You know, sometimes you're lucky in your life that you can be part of or create or make a record that just changes things. Um, and I think that record, you know, was a record that it, 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 it's, 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 a, it's just one of the great records of that period. Um, do you think that when it's happening? No. But did I think it was something special? Absolutely. Most people didn't. You know, most people didn't get what, it. What were they saying? Well, how could you put out an instrumental hip hop record? Who, who's going to care about that? And I'm like, well, who cares about those so but and you know instrumental records will never sell i'm like but well then what about beethoven or mozart or dark side of the moon i, I found it quite strange you know but um but i think also that what was what's so special about that record is it's about a relationship with it's a, it's a dj shadow record and at the heart of that it's his record but his sources of inspiration and why that record in the, the the dynamic of that record and you know records like stem or 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 you know those tracks you can really hear the influence of the uk and him coming to london and absorbing coming to me to metal to metalheads or going to bar rumba and hearing me and giles peterson play carl craig to ronnie size to you know the first time that inner city life was ever played to the f i mean we pretty much played you know we broke at that club, we broke um, higher state of consciousness. It's the first time outside of, you know, Goldie's, you know, it, Giles is the first person outside of Goldie to get an acetate of inner city love. It was the first time that any of those records were played outside of their own 
their own comfort zones. I, I was the first person to get Portishead and acetate of Portishead. I was the first person to get, you know, an acetate of the second Massive Attack record. I was, the, I, I played, you know, you'd hear 69 by, you know, Carl Craig. You'd hear, you know, Fotech. You'd hear, um, James Brown, you'd hear Sun Ra, you'd hear, you know, a Latin jazz record, you'd hear McCoy Tyner, you'd hear, you know, FBI, you'd hear, I mean, just these mad records next to each other. And I think that energy and, and the energy of what was going on in this mad eclecticism in London and this incredible, I mean, it was just the most incredible period of club culture where the lunatics still run the, run the asylum. It was, you know, every day of the week there was somewhere to go where you would meet the most incredible people. I mean, you know, you go to Metalheads on a Sunday and you, the Beck, Beck and Bjork would be there, but also Pete Tong and also, you know, Giles and Ross Allen and, you know, and every NR man from the country and, you know, you know, techno DJs and da 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 da. You know, it was, but but equally, you've got to remember that socially things were very different then. There was no internet. You didn't. You you, you clubs were a, a much more of a a place where everybody went to come together. And not that saying that that doesn't exist now, but I think it's slightly different. I think people have much more choice of what they do with their social time. Got it. It's you maybe know, a bit more lawless. It was much time. more lawless, but it was just like though you didn't have so much choice. So if you wanted to meet people you had a you know you might be I mean if you're lucky have a mobile phone most people didn't and that you know and uh you weren't emailing so if you wanted to connect you went you'd be like right i'm going monday night i'm going to go to bar rumba thursday night i'm going to go to some movement i'm going to go wednesday speed sunday i'm going to go metalhead saturday i'm going to go dusted you know and that's how you, that was communication that was your that was the internet do you know what I mean? That's mm. where you heard the records and, and you would go every week because I don't know if it's still the same now. I, I've got to be honest with you, from my experience of DJing, it's not. Is that like when a new record, you know, every week there'll be a new record and you go to that club to hear the latest records. I think now you go and see a DJ play his own records, but they're not breaking records. It's a different way. You know, it was like the radio, you know, you didn't have the radio in the same way. You might have three or four radio shows you listened to. You didn't have NTS and, you know, or even a six music. So if you wanted to hear that, you know, the, the, the clubs were your radio stations. They were your social environments. They were, um, everything the way, where you'd see what the latest, everything was clothes to, you know, who was in town. It was, you know, and, and, and also, it wasn't so heavily policed. It wasn't so, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't such a kind of a sort of um, effort to go through to get in. You know, you could smoke in a club. You could, you know, you weren't suddenly now when you're in a club and if you want to smoke, you're going to be ushered into the back. So the club is completely disparate because people are sort of darting off in one direction to go somewhere else and da, da, da. It was all just in the mix. And I think... But it was, but, but I'm not saying that these things don't exist in other ways, you know, but I don't, I just think that that was your way of, that was, that was your communication network, you know. And this had a big effect on Shadow when he came over, you said. I think, yeah, undoubtedly, because he made, you know, because no, 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 you know, that was the time that he really, 
you know, and, and being in the office and being around Will Bankhead and me and Ben Drury and Tim Goldsworthy and Fraser Cook and, and Howie B and, you know, Bjork would be in the studio with Howie. Major Force Studio would be across in the other building and, you know, Nego from Bathing Ape would be there and then you'd have Futura painting in the corner and you'd have, you know, every day there would be, whether it would be a Goldie or a Fotec or a, or a Kirk to Georgia or an Andrea Parker or a Carl Craig or a Richie Horton, everybody would be coming to the office. So, you exp- you know that energy was there and that was that was that energy was was unbelievably uh, sort of um uh i, w- I want to say toxic but t- toxic sounds negative but it was just like it poured through the veins of everything and and that's why i think all these great records were made you know um i wanted to pick up on um science fiction yeah. uh, of course the the records um you made with josh I was, so I guess I was 14 when the record came out. I didn't hear it at the time, but I was aware of it as a, as a product, um, which I guess had something to do with the level of interest in the release. How did, how did that happen? How did it get to this like slightly insane level of pre-release? Because, because it was, you know, my wax was a big, had become this, big thing it had a major record label behind it it the, the osman who was running the label was very behind making this happen and the sort of what was meant to be the kind of the this the 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 the, the, the coming together of everything and the ultimate sort of the ultimate bombastic release of all that stuff was science fiction and it also there'd been a lot of hype over a lot of period of time you know the first article about the record was in the face five years before it came out so because the project well, no been going- three three years before it came out so it built this huge uh, buzz sort of mythical momentum and that also became its downfall you know um and yeah there was an appetite dj shadow just sold a million records you know introducing was pretty much voted the best record of the year two years before and you know records stuck with people in a way they don't now mm. do you know what i mean it, we, you know you you know you um records had much more staying power and, and momentum in in how they how they influence populist culture i think i think it does happen now but not to the same degree we're too it's too much it's too much it's too quick we don't you know you, you don't you know the value of things is different um, it's very hard, difficult to imagine us collectively building ourselves up over a sustained period, just geared towards one release, right? Yeah, it's Doesn't unfathomable. Yeah. Not, not now, no. Yeah. I mean, unless maybe you're a Drake or something like that. I don't know, but then it's sort yeah, of pop, real even, pop music. Even so, at this point, yeah. yeah, there's maybe a few artists you could think of, but yeah. not no. not to that level. No, and most of the artists you think about are artists that have already probably been established over a long period of time. You know, I don't know, a new Radiohead record or something, you know. Um, um, but I think that it, it yeah, it, you know, it was a different time and it was, it was sort of, it was, you know, it was that kind of, it kind of was this sort of pinnacle moment. But in many ways that kind of became its, um, its bitter pill really, you know. And I think that also, I think that if I'd been in America, I think things would have probably been different. I think it was also in England, they build you up and they knock you down, especially then. So by the point, you know, with science fiction, it was like, who the fuck does James Lavelle think he is? 
you know well that's one of the things that came across in the film i think the way uh, i think it was enemy in particular had you know played an enormous role in talking about and hyping the record and by the time it actually came to be released they had seemingly oh, changed their mind about the whole thing it. yeah but they also destroyed it because i dissed them about rob putting robbie williams on the front cover so they got, got it. very angry about that and so i suddenly became a kind of celebrated artist to who the fuck do you think you are and right. and, and you know I, I, but I, I think you know for me what was very sad is i was 24 years old i mean i wasn't I don't have the skills to deal with that. You know, every, suddenly you're the most, you feel like you're the most hated person in the world. And it was very, very. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to ask that how you reflect on the uh, controversy over your role in the records, you know, the, the fact that you were. Well, I think firstly, my, I think it's, I think, you know, I know what I did on that record. And I know that, you know, um, I also know that Shadow doesn't make records like, you know, John Lennon or Noel Gallagher, for sake of argument. He doesn't sit down on a guitar. You know, introducing is purely made out of other people's music. Is that a bad thing? No, because it's because I believe in sampling and, and, and collaging and it's an amazing record and it's an original record, but he's not playing keyboards or guitar or writing songs. He's collaging and to suddenly then be told that you, you know, equally your ideas have no value within the creative process was I, to this day, I think is completely wrong. You know, Goldie doesn't program. Massive Attack don't program. You know, um, Dan Avery doesn't program. Doesn't make him make. Does it doesn't mean the records aren't their records? No. Go and try and make them finish Sympathy. I mean, I can. You know, I know millions of programmers. They can't make that record. Mm. It's ideas. It's all about ideas. And I think that unfortunately, I got completely f fucked on that level. And I and it's something I still really feel that it's unfair that I didn't get publishing on that album. Do you feel as though your sort of standing in the sort of public imagination played a very big role in the interpretation of that situation in a way? You know, the fact that you were this, you know, pretty notable figure at that point, said some spicy things as well. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. no, absolutely. And, you know, how dare the guy that runs a record company and has all this success should benefit from being an artist, even though what people forget is that I set up my racks to put out my own records in the first place. And I put out my own records before I put out DJ Shadow's records. Mm. And, uh, and there were lots of other people doing that as well. Nobody contested Goldie having metal heads and doing his own records, but they were scared of him. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't dream of doing that. Yeah. I was an easy target. I was like, I was a, I, 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 I stupidly, I let that, I, 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 I was also very let down by, um, my management and my record company because at the time, you know, you know, they were there, they were meant to support me in this process. And because Shadow was the cash cow, they reneged. And so when it came down to it, you know, I remember having a conversation with Osmo. It was like, you should get publishing. It's unfair. I'll deal with it. And then it's like, oh, actually, we don't really want to mess the relationship with artists who just sold a million records and is considered the most important electronic artist in the world right now. So, you know, you've got the record company, so don't worry about it. And don't worry about it because we'll renegotiate. So you'll make money out of that. And we didn't renegotiate. And, I'm, you know, to this day, I've never made one single penny out of science fiction, not one penny. I've never had a tour out of it. I've never made... I, they, they, They... Um, also took my, they, they did a strange deal with me where I ended up with no sync income on it. 
I made. So that even going to my master rights, I've never made one penny. And I think people, you know, so, you know, and, and, and I also got completely, my life was torn apart by the negativity that, you know, that, of, of what was said about me. For actually, unfortunately, it was my, the whole thing was my idea. And, and apart, the only person that I, I, that wasn't my idea, but was a joint idea to get on that record was called G Rap. Every single person that collaborated on that record was my idea. You know, I, you know, Shadow wasn't in the studio when I did Be There with Ian, Brass, Ian, Ian Brown, which was the most successful uncle single. Um, I, you know, I, it was my idea to do, you know, to, to, in, it was, it was my idea of the shape of the record and, and to get Shadow in in the first place. And the irony is because I'm working on a science fiction, um, reissue at the moment. During this process of four years of working on it, I found loads of demos, demos that me and Tim did before Shadow. And those demos sound more like Uncle Records now than even science fiction. And, and, and so when people hear that, I think it'll be quite interesting because, you know, I got really cut down and that I don't do anything. But the other thing with science fiction is it wasn't just about the music. It was about the whole, it was about the universe around it. It was about the design, the characters, it was about toys, Bathing Ape, super, all these collaborations, Nike, all these things that came around it. You know, this this completely unique universe. Otherwise, I don't think people will be talking about it in the same way now. It, it is a record that the universe around it is what is now the basis of what we, of, of modern alternative music. That universe existed within pop don't get me wrong i looked at bands like kiss for inspiration for merchandise or the beatles or you know but that was pop you know um and so yeah the, you know i wanted to make a record which was like a film it was like i wanted it to be like star wars and you have the film but you have everything else that goes around it you know it's it's you know like this film saying that i'm really glad that i'm it's done the next point in my career is if i just want science fiction done because i also feel like i've i've never i can never move on mm. and i and i'm and it and it's you know to have something which is so long ago which has had created a lot of negativity even though it's it by many 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 people otherwise this film wouldn't be out or whatever people have great fondness for that record you know it really aggravates me you know i saw there was a review in the vinyl factory of the album and they you still to this day people can't start can't help but knock it and you're like do you actually listen to the record if you listen to that record and you're saying it's not a very good record and it's not you know me standing back from it it's just bullshit. You're telling me that Rabbit in Your Headlights or, or Lonely Soul is not a good track? You go and make a song like that when you're 24. Are you fucking kidding me? Because, you know, uh, there are a lot of records that I know are not good records and people know that they, they, that is, it's not, you know, um, regardless of me being involved or not, purely as a standing back, it's madness that you, that, that, that there's all this constant, oh, it just sounds like a bit of a them just fucking around with demos and trying some being sort of, uh, you know, the kids in a sweet shop. It's like, do you really think that's how we made that record? Are you insane? You know, it, it's like that record is unbelievably crafted. Go and make that record yourself or try because where are the records that have even come close? It's not that many. Massive Attack probably been I'm not, not even close better but there's not that many otherwise you know there aren't that you know do you know how hard it is to make a record on an mpc with a 40 piece orchestra that the track goes on for nine minutes 
I mean, and 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 away from the technical ability, the actual emotion that, that those records convey. I'm not saying it's a, the perfect album, but my God, you know, <laughs> do you know how many records came out on other labels that tried to be science fiction that are just they're not good records. I know what a good record is, that record. But people just can't handle it. It's sort of that horrible sort of perpetuation of, of sort of of a story. And it, that aggravates me because I actually think that, you know, if you, if you get into the core of it, there's, there is some work in there that I think is, 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 you know, you've got, with DJ Shadow, you've kind of, with his best work, what he ever did was introducing science fiction and a little bit of private press. And listen to his records after those records. Listen, listen to his vocal records. They're not, they're not comparable. So therefore, when people sort of contest my involvement in it, then look at my, when I'm not working with DJ Shadow. Do you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, it's, you know, but I, and I'm not trying to say it's the greatest thing ever. I'm just saying that I just, it, it annoys me when people sort of think it's some kind of, it was just some kind of us having a laugh sort of, you know, um, uh, wasting a load of money and sort of trying to, you know, sort of, I don't know what's the right word. Um, you know, there was no cohesion or whatever. I, I think that's absolute mm. rubbish. Like it was just a, a, a vanity. Like, a vanity. Yeah, that's what it was it not a vanity project. Yeah. It was my life's work up, up until that point. It was everything that I wanted to say. It was and more. And some of that I didn't get to say because some of the record didn't evolve in the way that I would have liked to due to time. Yeah, that's know. something I wanted to ask you about, actually, because um, thinking about the film, the story is driven in a large part by Uncle and the evolution of Uncle. We get to see, um, you know, the revolving uh, cast of characters, all the different uh, versions of the band. We see behind the scenes some quite uh, torturous at times, um, you know, scenes of creative, the creative process. One thing I was interested to know from you is you, at, at times you seemed very, very focused, almost to the point of obsession over, over this, over an achievement that you, you seem to have very sharply in your mind. But the film seems to suggest that you were chasing success in and of itself. And I assume that that wasn't the case. So I was interested to know artistically or emotionally, what was the thing you were, trying to convey with the with those albums you know just, what was it's just what was it's just what you're you. trying to what you what you're it's like any i suppose like m m m most artists i'm just trying to express myself mm. and those records represent how you feel and the, the the language in which you want to convey of emotion and 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 um i, I, I mean i definitely get really that about, it was never really about chasing success um it was just about trying to make make things mm. and collaborate and I love I like working with creative people and I like making things and you know what else you know I don't that's all I that's what I know how to do sometimes I do it right sometimes I do it badly you know like everybody sure, but, sure, sure. but I, I, I it's just this desire to kind of create and, ex and express yourself. It's pretty much the same as probably anybody else. You, you think know? so yeah. Yeah I mean I think if it was purely business driven then I would be working in a record company. Mm. You know, a lot, I know a lot of, you know, you know, okay, example, Max Lasardi started Ultimate Dilemma. He now runs Warner Brothers and he signed, James, you know, James Blunt and fucking uh, Ed Sheeran. I mean, you know, is that what you wanted me to do? Because that's what I didn't want to do. I wanted to make artistic 
a few, you know, what I thought were creative artistic statements based on feeling and 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 how you convey that through music and art. Mm. You know. Well, this is the, uh, I guess, gradual shift towards a more rock orientated sound. Just be simply following. I just your- got. I mean, I got inspired by you know that the whole uh, me and Rich got really into a sort of it, rhythm was always the sort of was the the basis for how you started rhythm and emotion. And but the most the you know when you're starting tracks, most of it would start with beats because we weren't we weren't guitar you know we weren't singer songwriters, so you'd start sampling, collaging, and the beat would be the foundation for the you know to add to and everything would come from the beat and if the beat was cool because you're DJing clubs it was all about the beat then you knew you could build from the beat and so first record was rooted in hip-hop second record you know but then that sound wasn't translating into clubs because I was then in fabric and it suddenly became more up-tempo it became more breakbeat and electronic orientated so that's where the the rhythms influenced Never Neverland and then I heard Queens of the Stone Age and the way that the drums were on Queens. And I loved the way the drums were. And me and Rich were like, fuck, if we could translate that sort of style into what we do, that could be a new sound of beats. And that's kind of where that started from. And I think also, you know, we, we were quite severe. Like once you did a record, you wanted to move on. It was like, well, we've done that. We want the sound to change. So you're looking for different inspiration for sound. And we'd never, I, you know, I remember on, you know, science fiction was kind of a rule of no, really, it was like, you know, even before science fiction, it was a kind of Moax was like a no guitar rule. You know, we were making records without guitars, you know. Um, by the time it got to, by the time it got to war stories, it was like, well, we never really did that. <laughs> Maybe we should start working with some guitars. And, and it was just what was, what you, what you were being inspired by. And, it just happened that that sort of LA, you know, uh, sound, Chris Goss, the desert rock sound, I found very inspiring. It was also the people that were embracing me at the time, you know, and 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 it felt exciting and 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 shit just happens, you know. Sometimes yeah, you just start something, and then the next minute, you know, you're like, I mean, I always laugh. Like my most successful chart record is it was writing Queens of Stones, Stone Age, like Clockwork. You know, which is the irony from the fact that you know you come from making hip hop. You have it's a number one record in America one, yeah. with 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 a rock record. You know, um, I was interested to know um, how you feel you've um, evolved as a musician producer um, over the last you know, decade or more. You know, have your interests in the production process? shifted at all like you know what, what do you think that evolution yeah, I mean, has been uh, like uh, i don't know it's hard when you're sort of talking about yourself i think that i i'm I, yeah i think that i'm um it's hard when you sort of talk about yourself in that way i think that on a, a purely sort of technical articulation of knowing what can work and not probably a lot better and especially as technology's evolved that's making records like i do it's become a lot easier you know, you can't imagine when you're doing something like, when you're doing introducing, you know, to program a beat could take a month. Now you can do it on Ableton in like a minute, you know, which is great, but it also just, you know, it's a different kind of, it's a different working process. I think that, um, 
I'm not so naive. So I have different kind of boundaries and I have different, I put myself in different situations and I'm also older. So therefore my influences are different in the sense of maybe what I'm trying to say and what I'm listening to. And I'm not, I'm not that kid in the club necessarily at five in the morning, you know, in the way that I used to be, you know. Um, so that changes. I think that, I mean, I am, but I'm usually DJing and I'm not the kid unfortunately um but i don't know i think that but the irony is a lot of what i'm doing at the moment is sort of going full circle and what I'm, some of the stuff that i'm trying to make right now is taking a lot of the influences which i'd you know a lot of the time you kind of do things and then you kind of had this we had this quite strange thing the artists on my wax like once you'd sort of once everybody caught up with you you had to move on and that was then move on everything was build and destroy you know I think now I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm much, I've got this thing of, it's weird, like I'm suddenly going back to older records going, oh God, I like that actually now. I, I, you know, that's pretty good. And oh, I really would like to make more records like that. I never got to make, and I still haven't quite, is my sort of, you know, my my sort of sample record. And, and in the sense of, you know, I had a career before DJ Shadow. And I think that's what that movie and a lot of people forget is that, you know, I was, well, actually in the movie, it does show a bit of that. But, you know, I was playing with Giles Peterson and people like that and playing very eclectically. And then I went more into the dance world and that, you know, when you're DJing in certain clubs, there's a certain energy you need to create and there's certain records that serve a purpose to do that, which I really enjoyed. But I think now I'm much more, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm a part of any scene or any thing. I'm quite open. And it's really exciting for me because I'm sort of like anything goes. And I have a radio show that I really enjoy because, you know, I, I, up until doing the radio show, if I go and do a DJ set, predominantly it'll be you're playing in a club, in a certain kind of club, which is usually a, a dance music club. Therefore, you're not going to go and play Isaac Hayes in, you know, in the middle of, you know, of, 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 a, of a techno. I mean, you, you know, there are other records. It, it's hard to explain, but like... Being able to do the radio shows just let me just be very musically free, palette-wise. And and also the fact that where I am in my career and also, you know, I think that's partly a positive, for me, quite a positive thing about the documentary, sort of reconnecting with people from the past, as well as the new people that it's brought into my life. And how actually, you know, I'm taking all that influence and putting it into new records. So I'm, I've got, I work with a lot of younger um musicians and a lot of younger kids that are into you know into the past but they've got their what they're doing now and how that is influencing me and and um i'm just really excited about a certain kind of freedom that i think maybe i bo you know sometimes you kind of you retreat you box yourself in you're going down a rabbit hole in one level and then you come out and you're like oh my god why did i go down there for so long i think now it's just i'm just having a little bit of a kind of oh you know it's 25 years here i can I, I, you know, I, I, I can, it doesn't matter if I make an acoustic record or a hip hop record. It doesn't matter where the jump from science fiction to Never Neverland and that jump from Never Neverland to war stories was felt so severe. You know, it doesn't feel like that now. So, you know, I've just done a soundtrack for Danny Boyle for his new TV show, which is of a certain kind of sound and then you know i've just remixed the editors and that's you know a club record and and i like being able to and but i don't feel like i'm going to get that sort of what is he thinks he's doing now you know whereas there was a long time of 
who the fuck does he think what the fuck you know he's making a rock oh my god you know how dare he you know so he's taking advantage a little bit of the uh, open mindedness yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. I think that's also what's great about um, the music scene now is that it's so much more diverse it's so much more open I mean don't forget that 10 years ago you'd never have a rapper rapper on a house record I mean it happened back in the hip house days died a death Puffy tried to do it with Darren Emerson that fucking died a death now you know hip hop is synonymous with dance records you know even to hear the RZA on a, on a record a house record the other day I'm like wow I mean it's great but like you know you're like it, it's all open you know and, and that's really great because it's sort of you know whether it's Mark Ronson producing Queens of the Stone Age or you know um, you know as an example or a techno producer working with a with a, a rapper or whatever I mean it's really wide open but and I think kids and I think what's great is that you know I've got a 21 year old daughter they don't see the boxes in the same way that that I grew up with those boxes. All I wanted to do was break down those boxes. Mm. My friends didn't see the boxes, but media lived through those boxes. You know, radio lived through those boxes, you know. How does all of this manifest in your DJing at the moment? What are you playing? Uh, it depends because I've been playing quite a varied, varied sort of places of late because of what's been going on with all this sort of Moax stuff, etc., meltdown. So on one level, I've been very eclectic and sort of, you know, playing very across the board from sort of soul and funk through to, you know, what I really like at the moment is sort of playing for like four hours, five hours and starting with like soul and funk and then ending up with techno. That's you get to do I that much. Yeah. I, mean, that, yeah. I do of late. Yeah. But then there are other circumstances where I'm in a club and I, you know, I've got to play t t t for the floor. And that's great. So I'll play more. I've always liked playing a quite euphoric, psychedelic, you know, house. So, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Jonas Rathman to uh, Fortet to, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm terrible with names. You know, I'll play for anything from Dubfire to those kind of, you know, but it's, but, but I still try and weave things in. I mean, I, you, know, DJ, you know, DJs to me that I really love are people like Harvey in, in the club scene because, you know, you can hear techno and then you can hear Led Zeppelin in the same set. I love that. It's just how you present that. And, and so I've always tried to be eclectic, but I have, you know, I curated the jazz cafe last year. So each night I did a different performance with a different artist. So one night was a jazz thing. Another night was a hip hop thing. Another thing was a soul thing. So, you know, that was great to be able to play a lot of records that I wouldn't, I haven't been able to play in nightclubs over the last 15 years because, you know, I, I you know, I, 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 that's not the environment that I was playing in. You know, me and Giles are uh, talking about doing some stuff again which would be great. But I also like to be able to play with, you know, I liked playing with Sasha back in the day. I liked playing with Dubfire and people mm. like that, you know. Something a bit big and epic. Yeah, yeah I love yeah, playing yeah. big fucking clubs with amazing sound systems and- Sure. But, but, yeah. but, but I'm not, but also that scene has changed quite a lot and I'm not, I'm not where I was in that scene right now. And I get that. So I suppose for me, you know, an example of somebody that I would probably, in an ultimate way that I would probably like to, I would play more like in that way, ultimately would be like when I see something like Harvey, where you can get to play very across the board, but he's still playing for a club crowd, you know, and, but I think people are open, you know, and I think that's great, 
you know. But really great DJs to me, that was what they always were. Carl, you know, Carl Cox, even though you it's enormous techno, he's, he's a fucking brilliant soul DJ as well, you know. Came from soul and funk, you know. Um uh, you know, and, 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 and I like, I like, you know, the Dixons and the Armes and, you know, I like melodic dance music and, and, or a, a melodic techno. I'm not particularly in, I don't, you know, it's really difficult now with all these terms and everything. I'm not, I'm not very into, um, the pop side of dance music culture, even though I can respect some of the records, but I'm not really, those, those DJs do not speak to me. Yeah, I got it. You know, um, I like people that are, I, I, that, I, that I feel uh, uh, both, you know, I always felt that DJing was about entertainment and education. And that's what, and so, you know, whether it was a Larry Levan, a Giles Peterson, a, a Harvey, and these are all old guys. I mean, I suppose you've got a new, gen, you know, lots of great new people coming out of that, whether, and especially with, 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 with female DJs and the Peggy Goos and people like that, you know, are just great eclectic club DJs, you know, but they can fucking, they can bang it out too and you know I like I like people you know it's not it's not an avocation for drugs but I like people that are in a certain place in a certain environment going on there's nothing better than playing to a euphoric ecstasy crowd you know yeah, um, I was wondering just uh, more generally about DJing as well, because um, something I seemed to detect from the film was that um, DJing, uh, you know, although it comes with its perils and, you know, we are talking about the, the chaos of nightlife, in a way it seemed to be this just, you know, very straightforward, quite pure expression that you were able to fall back on. It was just like, it's me well, it was the and the basis of everything, yeah. yeah. And, was, and, and, and I could just go and do that on my own, you know. I don't need, you know, I don't need somebody else to make it for me. I do, I can do it myself. Do you know well, what I mean? I, I, I guess control, when you're coming, you know? coming from a background of mass collaboration yeah, and yeah, loads yeah, of people yeah, in the totally, studio. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and also, and it's just, but it's also just that kind of, it's the thing that it's the heart and soul. It's the basis for everything. It's sort of, you know, it, it, it's, it's my, it's the tools, the basic tools of my trade, you know, everything else has grown from that because what DJing allowed you to do was, was to uh, become, you know, was to collage and to, to learn how things would fit and flow. And, you know, again, this sort of idea of education and entertainment was, okay, you know, how do you get to play something that nobody's ever heard before um, and make it relevant and fit with something that, you know, so you needed to kind of, you, you've got to keep people interested. So you drop things that were familiar and then you take people off and a lot of the time, what great DJs did was clear the floor. You know, it would be unthinkable now for a Diplo or a Stevie Aoki to clear the floor, right? But I've seen every one of the greatest DJs and enjoy it. You know, I've been there where somebody like Harvey or Cole Cotts will go, check this out, they're going to leave, they're going to clear the floor. But next week, this will be the biggest record in the world. And that's, and that's, that was, that's, that was true. You know, a lot of records that people go, Oh my God, you know, it's the greatest record ever. You know, when you first played it, that's not what people reacted to, but because of the business, because of the expectations, you know, to, to do that, there's fear. So there's a lot of safety within contemporary DJs. I think not everybody at all, but a lot, especially those at the top of the tree, you know, it just doesn't pay to take a risk really does it no it doesn't pay to take a risk because in those days you were getting paid 
500 quid, if you're lucky, or, or God, if you're doing really well, 1,000 pounds. And even with that, of course, the more money you were getting paid, the more pressure it was that if you did make a mistake, then you were going to pay for that because you were expected to deliver. But in the early days, and the great, the, the days where it wasn't, and I'm not, I don't want to sort of be on this reminiscing like it was better. I'm not trying to say that. It's just the, it was a different industry. And when the industry was not a, a money making, not even money making, there was money being made. I mean, we didn't want to do it for free. You wanted to make a living. But, you know, I mean, what are the expectations? If you're getting paid a million quid to DJ a night, which some DJs are, 250, 300,000 pounds a night, not a year, one night. Of course, the expectation is it needs to be the greatest party and everybody needs to be happy. Yeah, there's not a second of that no, performance no. that can be out of place. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, you know, but then again, great bands. I mean, you know, great bands have done that. You know, I mean, the amount of times that I've seen my, you know, the, the, what are considered the greatest bands in the world, you know, push people to the nth, you know. People go and see a Radiohead gig and being like, oh, you haven't played Creep, you know. <laughs> I mean, that still goes on today, doesn't it? Oh, you, know, <laughs> you know, um, but you've got it. So I think there's an element where that's very, that, that side of it's quite different, you know. And I, but I think, you know, I look at people like, you know, I think people like Craig Richards have always, people like that have always pushed the bar and he's, you know, but, but, you know, I'm talking about DJs that are even older than I am. So I feel a bit guilty here, but I haven't been, I'm not so in, I'm not in the club scene in the same way, you know. I've also, there are other things that I want to do. Making records, what I love, and making the kind of records that I do take a different kind of amount of time and, and, and you know, life with family and, and just having been, you know, as you can see in the documentary, incredibly, you know, a very fast-paced, slightly insane periods of time. I've also had to sort of, for my own sanity and my own health, I've had to kind of pull back and look at other, you know, what, what other things do I enjoy doing? Before the 